Hello, and welcome to What's the Dilemma? I'm your host, Emma Rakovic. On this podcast, I'll be examining a range of issues and talking with professionals about solutions to shed more light on them. The first episode will be centered around mental health and the stigma surrounding it. Disclaimer, this content may be triggering for individuals. Topics such as suicide, self-harm, eating disorders, anxiety, depression, and more are discussed. Listen at your own risk. I had a conversation with Laura M. White, the program manager of Teen Scope South and a licensed clinical psychologist, regarding her work at the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and her views on mental health particularly as it relates to teenagers and young adults. My job specifically is I'm a psychologist as well as a program manager for the day treatment program through the hospital. So that is a program that the teens who have mental health issues where they aren't able to go to school or day-to-day functioning, where they come to the hospital for treatment for the day and then they go home at night. But I also help out with I guess for parts of my job, I help out with um, psychological testing and help with diagnoses and then treatment for the kids. Where is the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and what is their mission? Well, the Huntsman Mental Health Institute, the main hospital, is in Research Park, so 501 Chapeta Way. That's a pretty large hospital. It has 170 beds for kids, teens, and adults who have mental health problems where they're not kind of safe, where they feel like they need to be hospitalized. And the mission, I guess, is to provide good quality, like evidence-based mental health care for those in the community and the state at large. It's pretty dedicated to fighting kind of the mental health stigma, which I know we're going to talk more about today. That's actually kind of one of their main missions is to provide like dignity, respect, and kind of quality care for, for those with mental health issues. We're also considered one of the top mental health hospitals in the Mountain West area, so we get a lot of patients from like Wyoming and Idaho and Colorado and kind of all over that come to HMHI. Interesting. So what inspired you in particular to become a psychologist? Oh, good question. I actually love answering this question. (laughs) So when I, I mean, since I was little, I've always been someone who enjoys like working with kids. And when I say little, I mean like high school. I knew I kind of want to work with kids. My, my parents are both elementary school teachers and that was kind of a, a big thing. And so I initially thought I wanted to be a pediatrician, but then I don't really like a lot of blood and medical things. So then I was trying to think what would be a good job where I could work with kids and, and help them. And then I did a year of volunteer work through the AmeriCorps program, and I actually lived in Baltimore. I actually lived at a, at a homeless shelter there, and I worked with the kids who were unhoused in the city of Baltimore, and I would kind of go around to different homeless shelters and help out with unhoused families. And while I was working there, it was really very apparent to me that there were so many mental health problems with a lot of these kids, experiencing a lot of trauma and instability and neglect. and that they didn't really have anyone to talk to and they felt really isolated and and so it got me really interested in like oh I should work with kids who have mental health issues and then I kind of all clicked and so then I went to grad school for psychology and ended up becoming kind of a kid-focused psychologist. Very nice and when did you enter the psychology field? I started grad school in 2009, then I had my, it took three years to finish my master's, and then I started seeing people and patients kind of in 2012, and then I stayed to finish my PhD in 2015, and then I've been kind of a licensed psychologist since then. So, boy, eight-ish years where I've been licensed since postdoc, but about 11 altogether. Nice. 
So, as you know, mental health is a growing problem for people all over the world, including teens and young adults. How has the mental health crisis impacted these groups specifically? Yeah, I think you're asking a really good question. Something that we're all trying to kind of in the mental health field better understand. I think that there, one, I will say this, there's there's been good research that even pre-pandemic kind of over time the past few decades that the mental health issues for, for teens and young adults is kind of increasing, right? So the prevalence of people who meet criteria for disorder or who have issues or feel like they have to avoid school or, or can't kind of function in the real world has, has gone up over time. But there there's pretty good evidence out there that the pandemic in conjunction with like this preponderance of social media and kind of online connections has really been detrimental for mental health for kids and teens and, and kind of this generation who are high school and college kids now. Mm-hmm. So they've actually done some cool research. I was actually reading a research article last night about done some like MRI brain scans on kids where they had done some scans with teens prior to the pandemic, not knowing the pandemic was going to happen, but kind of ongoing research. And then afterwards, and literally like parts of their brains have changed and the structures in their brains that are changed are parts that would make them like less able to regulate emotions, less able to like handle stress and fear and like those big emotions because they've gone through these like very stressful pandemic or other kind of situations. So it's kind of a whole generation now that's gone through this trauma of the pandemic and these stressful situations that are kind of likely to have more mental health problems as they get older. Very interesting. And you did mention social media, and I did want to address that. In your experience, what effect does social media have on mental health among teens and young adults? Yeah, so social media is an interesting one. It's not a perfect answer that social media always negatively impacts teens. But most of the time in my experience and from reading research, in general, there's a pretty good argument that the higher amount of time you're spending on social media, that means less time with social connections in real life, right? And less time with your family or doing the hobbies or things that you would find mm-hmm. joy and kind of meaning in, right? Mm-hmm. So there's generally a correlation with like the higher amount of time you're on social media. Usually the higher one feels with depression, anxiety, kind of low self-esteem, feeling like they can't measure up to what they're seeing on social media. And also like lower like social skills, less, you know, more isolation. So in general, when I work with a lot of teens, I would say almost every teen that I work with has some kind of issue with like electronics. So that might be video games, social media, whatever it is. And it's typically that they're spending too much time. They're looking at inappropriate things. They're forming relationships with people they don't actually know. And it's, it's, it's making it hard for them to, to kind of function in the real world. And then we have a lot of parents who don't know Should we put limitations? Should we say they can be on these social media sites? What's the appropriate limitations? And there aren't really good answers for that. And a lot of teens don't really want to follow the guidelines anyways Mm -hmm. because they're teens and they're almost adults. So so that can be really challenging. How do you advise them? How do you support them through that? Yeah, it it is a little bit of a case-by-case. Some some teens are more responsible and could could handle being on social media or certain sites better than others. So sometimes it's a teen that that we just say, like, well, we're just going to take a break from Instagram or from posting on TikTok or Snapchat. 
other times, but other times what we generally do is create, we actually create a social media contract or plan with most teams that I work with, with in conjunction with their parents, maybe with teachers or whoever else is involved, of like these are the sites they can be allowed on, this is how much time, these are the things that maybe would be non-appropriate, or if they start to talk to someone, maybe they ask a mom or someone else to like check and say, does this seem like a who they say they are right kind of involving other people on their social media so we actually create like a little plan or contract and then see how that goes so that's kind of what we generally advise and in conjunction i almost always tell teens and young adults like try to find some time each day where you're out there doing something that's not social media now you could meet people on social media who are all interested in the same book hobby movie right game mm-hmm. whatever it is and then go meet those people and do those things in real life but to try to do some things that are kind of face to face in person very nice which some teens don't do at all so that's <laughs> like you know trying to get them back out into kind of non-electronics is helpful and there is a lot of stigma surrounding mental health and receiving mental health treatment why do you think this is and what can we do as a community to eliminate the stigma surrounding the issue yeah, so mental health stigma is it's a really big issue. So this is a hard, kind of a very broad question for me to have a great answer. But in general, I think it's interesting. Mental health stigma, and when we talk about stigma, we mean kind of these negative beliefs or kind of unfair beliefs about people who have mental health or substance use problems, right? And it's interesting because the stigma has really persisted for years. So if you think about it, like, if you read or know much about like early history, like there there are comments and and negative negative like information about people with mental illness dating back to like the dark ages, like the Renaissance period, like where people say if you have a mental illness you must have like demonic possession, right? Or like you need a hole in your head to like let out the mental illness. You know, like mm-hmm. so so this is like centuries of stigma against people of mental illness. So this is like long entrenched ingrained in our like society. So I only say that to kind of put it in a historical context. It's like a big deal. So the HMHI is actually spearheading a campaign right now called the Grand Challenge where they are trying to combat the goal is to essentially eliminate stigma for those with mental health disorders. And so they've involved like national organizations like American Psychological Association, American Psychiatric Association, National Alliance of Mental Health, or, and so, so different organizations that are across the country. And the goal is to try to kind of tackle stigma via like media, like putting, you know, movies, social media that's, that's more appropriate, that's more reasonable, that's not negative against people who have mental health, but also a lot of like story sharing. So people sharing their experiences with mental health or caring for those who have mental health and kind of just getting it out there so that it doesn't feel quote unquote stigmatized or we don't have to hide or pretend, right? So there's not really a great answer, but I think if I could give anyone advice on like combating mental health stigma, and I talk to parents a lot of teens who have mental health issues, is to just be very careful about the language that we use, right? So people continuously say like, oh, that person's crazy, or like, oh, they're so bipolar, or having an OCD day, or whatever that mm-hmm. might be. I hear that in kind of just day-to-day talk, mm-hmm. and that's not really helpful, right? That that makes it seem like it's negative, and that people who have those disorders are quote-unquote crazy. So trying to say like, oh, that person has OCD, or they are having some symptoms, and, and kind of just talking about it in a more neutral way. I talk about it with parents like we don't say someone is like 
who has cancer is crazy, right? So we would say, like, they have cancer. They're getting treated for cancer. We, so if we could talk about it the same way for mental health, that would be really helpful for a stigma. Yeah. So, like, we wouldn't... We never say, like, because I was trying to think of an analogy. Like, we, I hear people say all the time, like, oh, I have ADHD, I have OCD, all these mm-hmm. things, but they don't really have them. But I don't ever hear people be like, oh, I have lupus, I have diabetes. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like, it's not the same thing, right? So yeah. if we could can treat it similarly to physical health issues, that would help with the stigma. How do you think the mental health crisis affects different age groups or demographics? So, so definitely mental health issues affects all like all people, you know, there's not really any kind of age, demographic, socioeconomic kind of cultural group that that is not impacted. Mm-hmm. But there is pretty good research and, and pretty good evidence of tracking people over time that certain mental health disorders are definitely more prevalent in females than males. So they've done some really good work in high school, like surveying high school kids in the past year or two, kind of post-pandemic, like as they've gotten back, and they're finding like females are much more likely than males to report feeling depressed, thinking about suicide, engaging in self-harm, things like that. They're also finding kids who identify, kids, teens, adults who identify as part of the LGBTQIA community tend to have higher rates of, of feeling victimized and stigmatized and then experiencing kind of associated mental health, depression, anxiety, low self-esteem things like that and then people of color it's interesting because with the pandemic people who identified as Asian were actually reporting the highest kind of racist and like microaggressions and things which which makes sense because the pandemic there was this narrative that it was coming from Asian countries and things like that and so certain cultural and kind of certain people of color certain groups were also reporting higher mental health problems so it 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 depends but but right now it seems to be that that kind of racial minorities, females, certain certain females in an LGBTQIA uh, community seem to be the, the ones that are more impacted by mental health issues. Very interesting. I know you talked a little bit about the pandemic and how that's affecting a lot of people around the world. Is there any other specific cultural or societal factors you think that's contributing to the mental health crisis? Yeah, I think... I mean, the pandemic is definitely the big one, but I definitely think just in general, the internet, like people being connected. So there's been a higher, there's been some arguments about more people are being diagnosed with disorders like depression and ADHD. And is that because more people are reading about it online and just better at like asking their doctor or bringing it to their attention right before when they wouldn't have before. Mm-hmm. So more awareness equals more people reporting and then more people with the disorder. But that doesn't really seem to explain the like big growth in, in disorders and people who are coming forward with this. But so, so I think that they're kind of arguing that it's a combination of things. One is like we're more digital, we're online, we have less social connections. There's actually some really interesting ideas out there about earlier cultures and generations spent a lot of time outside because they did not have computers and TVs Mm -hmm. and things. And outside, outdoors has been shown to be really highly correlated with strong, like healthy mental health. And so now we're all inside and we're kind of isolated and we're hunched over in these little cubicles and things like that. So like the way our world is set up now is not conducive to like good mental health. So there's kind of environmental factors. There's also a lot of people who are feeling great anxiety about kind of global global warming and like 
changing planet and like there's a lot of information out there about like our planet is dying in certain mm-hmm. ways right and species are going extinct so there's kind of this existential crisis that people are experiencing that is likely impacting mental health and then I think the other thing is just like I, I talk a lot with the teens who are pretty worried about like various like global wars and conflicts so, I've t- so some of our kids will bring up like they're pretty worried about what's going on in Israel and Palestine and, and other places or they're worried about laws that are restricting reproductive rights or kind of mm-hmm. political things that are going on so there's a lot of stuff going on that I think is playing a role in our kind of levels of mental health and essentially spiking our anxiety. What mental health disorders do you treat at the Huntsman Mental Health Institute? We treat a wide variety of disorders, but the most likely or common disorders that we would treat, at least for teens, would be a mood disorder. So like a major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety, social anxiety, sometimes bipolar disorder, though that is less common. And then we often treat a lot of kids with neurodevelopmental type disorders. So that would be like autism or ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Sometimes we'll treat kids with obsessive compulsive disorder or some kind of behavioral issue like an oppositional defiant disorder. In adults, we, we see more mood, like anxiety, depression, bipolar, things like that, but then they're more likely to have like emerging psychosis, so like a schizophrenia or a schizoaffective disorder. A lot of later, o- older teens and young adults have a lot of substance use disorders. We see a lot of people with that. And then the number one reason why we would admit someone at HMHI or why we would treat them as suicidal like thoughts, behaviors, or self-harm. So that's not an actual like diagnosis, but most of the disorders I've mentioned will, will, will often be co- or one of the symptoms is to have suicidal thoughts or think about ending your life. So that's, that's primarily is that we're treating them because they can't be safe, so they're not able to kind of commit to staying alive or, or making efforts to, to be safe trying to think of other disorders. I mean, we, we, we treat a lot of kids who have like learning problems or intellectual deficits or things like that, but that wouldn't be the primary reason that they're being treated at HMHI. And then you talked a little bit about like OCD, ADHD, anxiety, depression. Can you briefly explain some of these more well-known mental health issues? Sure. Boy, I'm trying to think what would be the easiest <laughs> way to, to explain them. So when we say depression, I think that that's, that's typically anxiety and depression are our most common. About 10 to 20% of teens will report having those, and, and many of them will meet criteria for an actual disorder. For depression, what we're essentially saying is that you're feeling sad, depressed, or irritable, so kind of outside your typical mood or emotions, more often than not. So it's not as if you feel sad because you had something significant happen to you and then you feel sad appropriately about that right Mm -hmm. but but kind of sad depressed prolonged period of time usually at least two weeks and then typically other signs of depression so if you're kind of trying to figure out if someone might have depression and need help other symptoms would be like a lack of interest in things kind of isolating the things they used to enjoy they don't want to do anymore changes in eating changes in sleeping hard time concentrating getting things done and then often thoughts of death or suicide or thoughts of like, I'm not worth it, my life's not worth it, things like that. So that's kind of what we're talking about when we say depression. I have to be very clear with the teens I work with that like everyone is allowed to feel sad and depressed. Well, everyone's allowed to feel whatever they want, but mm-hmm. like we are all going to feel sad and depressed about things and be disappointed. But it's more, when we say depression, we mean like 
long-standing, like serious, lasting a long time, impacting all the kind of eating, sleeping, thinking, all the things, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. For anxiety, we mean kind of an elevated level of anxious kind of fear, anxiety. So you're feeling that, again, for a prolonged period of time. For generalized anxiety, it means you kind of have this level of fear, anxiety about bad things happening or something, like a wide variety of things. So it's not as if you're just worried about, like I work with a lot of teens who are like, oh, I'm very worried about a test and I'm very anxious about that. Well, that makes sense, right? You would mm -hmm. feel anxious about that, you prep, you study, and then the anxiety kind of goes away when the test is over. But these are, these are kids who just always feel, kids or teens who always feel anxious about a variety of things all the time. And they're always kind of assuming that bad things are gonna happen or people are out to get them or this isn't gonna work out and, and kind of that. That's what we talk about with anxiety. Sometimes people have specific anxieties like specific phobias or things like that. But more often than not, we see kids just with like a general kind of anxiety. For the other disorders, ADHD is, or ADD, depending on, some people don't say the H, that has to do with, that's an executive functioning deficit. So that are kids who have problems with what our frontal lobe, which provides executive functioning, have issues with that. So that's like poor planning, organization, maintaining attention, shifting focus, making good decisions tend to be very impulsive, very hyperactive. A lot of the things that kind of make us well-behaved humans, they, they have issues, struggles with. I will say this again, I tell people this all the time, everyone has issues with attention, right? Like if you were trying to talk to me about something that's very boring, mm. <laughs> I would not pay attention, but that yeah. does not mean I have ADHD, right? If I really needed to pay attention, I could, or I could try to shift my attention and shift back. But these are, if you truly have ADHD, you really can't. The opposite, which is not as well known, but an interesting kind of thing about kids with ADHD is they also can also have like hyper attention, meaning they can be very focused on like a very specific game topic, something that they're interested in. Mm -hmm. So it's not that they can't attend, it's that they can't attend to what they're supposed to, like the class lecture, or they can't shift attention back and forth, mm -hmm. and they get sidetracked on something that's like very interesting to them. Mm -hmm. And then OCD, that's less common, but I hear that one a lot, like just, oh man, it really, really bothers me that people are constantly like, well, I like to be clean, I like to be neat, I must be OCD, and it's like, well, no, mm -hmm. actually. Obsessive compulsive disorder is pretty significant. Those who have it, it's pretty debilitating. They can't really function, um, and it's pretty miserable. So if you know someone who truly has OCD, they, they're pretty miserable about their symptoms. But that has to do with obsessive thoughts, so repeated thoughts over and over that are typically negative, like something bad's going to happen, someone's going to die, and then associated compulsions, so certain behaviors that have to be done in a certain way, order, things like that, typically and typically there's a connection like if I don't tap this light switch 25 times then like my dog is going to die like mm -hmm. there's this like connection like these bad thoughts are connected to like I have to do these things to make sure they don't so we work a lot with with teens who have a lot of like compulsive that compulsive behaviors that are like hand washing, organizing, touching things a certain amount of time, chewing their food a certain number of times on their each side of their mouth, things like that, just mm -hmm. various. So, and that one can be really challenging, but but actually that one's one of the few that, that the treatment is is um, fairly effective and, and, and more short term. Awesome. I think those are the big ones. As I was talking, I did not mention one that's not a disorder that HMHI like 
specifically, but a few additional disorders that we will sometimes see if people are interested is we do work a lot with kids who have like eating disorders or like eating issues, sleeping problems, and then also like emerging personality disorders. Hmm. I had not mentioned that earlier, but we also work with those, those populations too. Interesting. And then where can individuals locate support and what steps should they take during a mental health crisis or if they're facing mental health issues? Really important question. I'm glad you asked. So there's a lot of different resources out there. And I will say in general, the state of Utah is, is really great. They're, they're pretty invested in mental health. The Huntsman family has given pretty generous donations to, to Huntsman Mental Health Institute and kind of getting these resources up and running. So in the state of Utah, the, the one that seems to be the most popular is there's the Safe Utah app. That's the free app that the state runs. That's just a text-based system where if anyone is feeling like they'd like to reach out to someone, they can send a text and they'll get immediate reply from like a crisis worker or a therapist who will text back. The teens like that because they don't want to call someone at like 2 in the morning, so, so that one's popular. If you want to call or talk to someone directly, obviously you could call 911, though that is not the ideal because that's more for fires and other type of emergencies. So if you're having a mental health crisis, the number is 988, so that's a national number. You can call it any in any state in the United States. If you're having a mental health crisis, 988, and then they'll connect you to the crisis like center in your state or like closest to where you live and then kind of get the ball rolling of what would be helpful. HMHI also, they have like a warm line number and a crisis line number. So the crisis line is 24 seven. You can call anytime and say like, I'm not safe or my child or spouse or whoever is not safe and, and kind of think about whether they should go to the ER, come into the hospital. So it's a little warm line, which is a number you can call that's manned by therapists. And that's like during the day and you can kind of just talk to someone and get some feedback or advice or kind of have like an emergency therapy session, quote unquote. So there's lots of like numbers you can call. And then if you really don't want to call or you feel like you got to talk to someone in person, you can always go to the emergency room and, and let them know you're not feeling safe or that you're having a mental health crisis. Or what I think is probably the better option would be to go directly to HMHI. We have a crisis assessment center in-house in the building, open 24-7, where a crisis worker would be there and be able to talk with you and assess what's going on and then determine, like, well, should you be hospitalized or are you safe enough to go back home and, and kind of help you figure out what, what to do. So, like I said, there's you can go in person to the hospital, you can call or you can text. And how should like the general public or those who have teens or kids who are facing these mental health issues, how can they like address it and how can they help them? Yeah, boy, it's, it's challenging. I think that a lot of parents and, and adults want to help their, their kids, their teens. One is to just be very open and mm -hmm. talking with them about, hey, it might be really hard to be a teen. Are you feeling stressed, anxious, kind of just opening up the conversation and not, not trying to force the issue, right? So just being open and kind of creating a space where you feel like if you want to talk about mental health stuff or not, like that's great, right? So one is just to kind of be open about it. Mm -hmm. If you are more concerned where you're seeing things like, boy, my kid is really isolating or they're really moody or just, you know, they had all these friends and now they don't, things that would be more concerning, then I think it'd be more helpful to directly ask them what's going on or how they're doing and, and probably look into getting your kid or teen into therapy at, at some level. I'm a proponent of everybody going to therapy like once a week or every other week just so that you have someone to bounce ideas off of and if things are getting to a crisis point that therapists would 
would kind of recognize it right and encourage you to step up to a higher level of treatment. But I think that a lot of parents are like overwhelmed with where do I even call, how do I even begin? So you can certainly call HMHI and they can give you some resources. There's therapists there, but also school counselors are a good resource. So you can have your kiddo meet with the counselor and chat with them about how things are going. And the counselors usually have some good ideas of, of resources. And then I always encourage people to call. It's not the easiest thing to navigate, but call your insurance or go on your insurance website and mm-hmm. kind of look up mental health. And there should be lots of resources for like clinics that are in your network or nearby or, you know, mm-hmm. groups or whatever's out there that your insurance covers. It's not super easy. Sometimes the insurance portals are confusing, but the info is there. There's lots of places that parents can look for to help their kids. All right. That's all I have. Do you have any final thoughts or comments? Well, one, I want to thank you again for, for letting me come and talk today. That was really it's important. I, I, I just want to emphasize, I think that just in general, recognizing that mental health is is kind of a common thing. About one in every six-ish, one in five-ish kids, teens, adults will have some kind of mental health disorder. So to just like recognize it's it's pretty common, it's fine, kind of talking about it in a language that's supportive and and kind of being aware as you talk. I know even I as a therapist will sometimes be like, what? That's crazy. And then I'm like, oh, I should not say that, right? Like Mm -hmm. that's just like ingrained in me. So kind of being aware of like, you don't know who's out there, what they're dealing with, to be really positive with your language and just be mindful about that. And then if you notice someone is seemingly having issues to just encourage them to call 988 or get treatment, I think that's the biggest thing with stigma, mental health stigma, is people are embarrassed or afraid or they don't seek treatment. And actually, this is a sad statistic, but like suicide is always one of the leading causes of death for teens and young adults because they were too afraid to get treatment and they didn't, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that that would be the thing is one, be careful about your language. Just try to talk about mental health in a positive way. And then two, encourage people to get treatment and get help. If there's something shameful about it, it's really helpful. Most teens, if I pulled a teen in here randomly who had gone to treatment, would say like they actually loved it. They Mm like talking to a therapist. They like feeling heard. Like it's, it's actually an enjoyable experience mostly. So yeah, that would be my big, and then certainly there's lots of places you can donate and, you know, help with funding, but I would be more, more encouraging just people to be aware of how they talk about it in their language. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah, of course. Thank you for letting me come in today. I had a conversation with Zoe Clancy, an OCD sufferer, regarding her experience with the disorder. Can you explain your experience with mental health? Yeah, so my experience with mental health I feel like everyone has mental health experiences. I, since I was younger, I've struggled with OCD. So that's been a big part of my life. When did you initially begin to exhibit signs of mental illness? I started showing symptoms of OCD when I was around four and a half. People say that it could actually be triggered by stressful events in life. And usually it comes on and off during stressful events and during that time my parents were getting a divorce so that was the first time that I kind of started noticing my OCD tendencies. And can you explain your journey with OCD more in depth? Yeah so I have a type of OCD that's called contaminant OCD and it's basically when you feel like 
you need to do a lot of cleaning or washing and it's actually one of the most commonly stereotyped OCDs where people say like oh I'm such a germaphobe instead of they use it like coinciding with OCD when actually it's very different. How and when did you get diagnosed and what was that process like? So I was never really diagnosed. My parents always knew that I had OCD and they took me to a lot of doctors where they would just say she had tendencies of OCD, but they're very hesitant to diagnose OCD, especially with women, because there's very little studies along with the fact that I was so young, so they didn't really want to put a diagnosis on me. OCD is actually one of the most commonly diagnosed, misdiagnosed with like anxiety and depression. I'm actually diagnosed with depression with OCD tendencies. Instead of saying they have OCD, they usually try and treat depression to treat OCD. So I was put on antidepressants for a while to try and manage OCD and that just ended up making things very numbed out instead of specifically targeting the OCD. Can you describe the symptoms you experience from OCD? Yeah, so a lot of it is intrusive thoughts, but a lot of people think, (laughs) get scared when some people say that. It's very targeted to like contamination, germs, if something touches something else and it feels like that item is contaminated, then I have to go wash it. So it's more of like your brain trying to convince you something that that is not real, but you can't really unconvince yourself of that thing. You almost have to go with that compulsion. So it's obsessive compulsive disorder, which I didn't really specify in the beginning, which is basically you just continue this cycle of habitual patterns that make you feel better for the compulsive thoughts you are getting. So as you know, there is a lot of misunderstanding and stigma surrounding mental health in general, as well as OCD. And can you explain the stigma surrounding OCD in particular? And what do you think can be done to destigmatize OCD? Yeah, so... There is a lot of stigma around OCD specifically. A lot of people use it, like I said before, very wrongly stereotyped with perfectionism, germophobia, other signs of anxiety. And even just like throughout daily life, I've heard a lot of people say, I have OCD or, oh my gosh, I'm so OCD. When they're like specifically trying to control an event or like cleaning, And I think a big stigma with OCD is that people are almost scared when they say someone, when someone says they got an intrusive thought, it's taken, a lot of people think that means, oh, they're violent or they are going to act erratically. They also, I've had a lot of people look at it as like a manic tendency So I would say that it's very stigmatized in that aspect. I would also say that along with stigma, it is so just misunderstood in general. People, it's hard to explain when, and sometimes you feel crazy yourself. 
it's not something that we can necessarily explain or people who have OCD can necessarily explain in a way that makes sense to other people who don't have OCD. And so it's kind of hard when someone else is saying, oh, I'm so OCD right now, or my OCD is acting up when they don't necessarily have OCD because it makes us feel more alone in something that we can't even explain to other people. So we're already feeling stigmatized and isolated. So yeah, I would say that's where a lot of the stigma stems from is just a misunderstanding of what the disease actually is. And how do you think we can destigmatize it? I think that there needs to be a lot more awareness made about OCD. I don't remember learning anything really about OCD in schools, but I learned about a lot of other mental health issues like depression and anxiety. And those are very common within adolescence. But I would say definitely a conversation that just because you are experiencing symptoms that coincide with OCD doesn't necessarily mean that you have the disease. I also would say the stigma that people with OCD are violent or erratic definitely needs to go down and be dropped by professionals and medical professionals as well because even in the medical field it is very stigmatized by doctors and psychologists and just people who don't understand it in full depth because there are specialized doctors for OCD and specialized therapists for OCD and I feel like those are the people that need to be educating on topics that are stigmatized more. And what is the treatment process like for OCD? It is very complicated. I think the treatment process for OCD definitely depends on the person. Medication is usually what they prescribe in symptoms, in cases of OCD. Usually an antidepressant is given to someone with OCD to try and manage their symptoms. But a lot of times this is also paired with therapy. A lot of people use, I want to say cognitive development therapy, where they try and find the source of what is the stressful event that is causing the OCD tendencies to try and reduce the symptoms altogether. But there is no cure for OCD, but it can be managed as you go out through, through life. And I think that by destigmatizing it, and being able to actually openly talk about it would help the people who are experiencing this mental illness as well. What advice would you give to someone who thinks they may be experiencing signs and symptoms of OCD? I would say to start talking to a medical professional. Self-diagnosis is never a good thing to do. It just makes you very confused. <laughs> That's why people say WebMD is not a place to go for your symptoms. But I would say definitely be open about it and try your best not to think that you are crazy even though your brain is basically telling you that you are. And I would just say, yeah, do what you feel is right for your body. And if you are prescribed with a prescription that's not necessarily serving you that you might need to try something else and that's okay to have to try something else and it is definitely a trial and error with a mental illness like OCD. 
Okay, do you have any final thoughts on OCD or mental health in general? I think overall, people need to understand that there is so much more going on beneath the surface and that we can't see everyone's mental health journey and to overall like destigmatize mental health in general. All right, thank you so much. Yes, thank you. I also spoke with Cheyenne Tidwell, who struggles with depression and anxiety about her symptoms. Can you explain your experience with mental health? Yeah. So I suffer with severe anxiety and depression. So that's the majority of what I suffer with. And when did you initially begin to exhibit signs of mental illness? I'd have to say around the age of 10. It does run in my family for depression and anxiety, but I tried really hard not to exhibit any signs because my my parents wanted that, so. Can you explain your journey with anxiety in particular? Yeah, so I didn't realize what it was at first because I was so young, but it it was kind of like that build up of like that feeling in your chest that's like, okay, I'm having, something's wrong. Like I'm panicking and I don't know what necessarily to do. It's nothing like bad, it's just I want to keep to myself and I want to like do and avoid things that I shouldn't be wanting to avoid at that age. So that's just how that started. And how and when did you get diagnosed? I officially got diagnosed within the past two years. I knew I had it, but uh, again, my parents didn't believe in me having it, no matter how much her kids were diagnosed so my older siblings, so I tried really hard not to be them because I wanted to be that child that was like, I'm perfectly healthy, but that didn't turn out to be that fact, so. And then when did you start experiencing symptoms of depression? With depression, I'd have to say that hit me really hard around the age of like 15. And what was your experience like with that? As a a teenager, right, it's already hard because you don't know everything. You don't necessarily know what you're thinking all the time or what's necessarily going on with yourself. You're still trying to find who you are and discover things. So the fact was I was going through a lot that ended up causing me to, one, just isolate myself more often. I'd isolate myself from friends and family. I wouldn't go out as much. I would lose interest in doing things. I would try and hide in my room. I'd want to sleep all day. It's just things that you should definitely pay attention to if your kids are going through it. What was the diagnosis experience like for you? The diagnosis experience, like I remember walking into the doctors and finally like sitting down and being like, okay, I think I need help, which You know, it had already been talked about because I had already been to, of course, primary care being like, hey, I'm going through all these issues. She kind of, I don't want to say expected it, but she was like, okay, like I understand because she dealt with like my sisters having it too. And then she's like, okay, let's get you started. Like I understand what's going on. I didn't feel judged, but it, it was still that guilt feeling of I... I'm sick, like I'm sick in a way, like I I can't control that, I can't make it better on my own. There is a lot of misunderstanding and stigma surrounding mental health, including anxiety and depression. Can you explain the stigma you think is that surrounds depression and anxiety, what that looks like? 
So I feel a lot of the time with, of course, everyone suffers with anxiety and being sad at times. Like you can be anxious in a situation before a presentation, right? That's totally normal or before a speech, but it's way worse when you're trying to like actually sit there, go through it, and you're having a panic attack because you're just sitting there. Nothing's necessarily happening, but it's because you're battling it in your head. You're going through all the situations that are making you so uncomfortable about what's going to happen, what are those outcomes, and then you're having a panic attack within the 30 seconds. It's not that fear and adrenaline of, I'm about to go on stage, or I'm about to do a speech, or anything like that. It's genuine panic. It's fight or flight that your body like kicks into. At least that's how I feel when it happens to me. So those two feelings are so different and I feel like people will phrase what they're going through with, oh, I'm so anxious or I have severe anxiety when they aren't diagnosed with it. It's just like random times when something is about to happen, like a speech. Then it's like, oh, I just have really bad anxiety versus having to deal with that on a day-to-day basis. What is the treatment process like for anxiety and depression? So, I personally, how I handled my anxiety is one, well, anxiety and depression is medication. That is one route. I didn't want to be on medication. I really did fight that because I just didn't think it would help me in any way. I thought it would make it worse. And I'm not going to say at first it made it better. I definitely felt worse, but, you know, that's just your body trying to get used to things. And then I've tried therapy, and sometimes that does help a lot to be able to talk to someone and have them talk to you about what works for you and how to calm yourself down in situations and how to regain control when you can't and you feel like you're at a loss. So doing things and actually asking for help, knowing that you need it, is more beneficial than just sitting there and suffering, which I still have to sometimes remind myself of doing. And what advice would you give to someone who is experiencing symptoms of anxiety and depression? Don't ignore it. As much as, like, anyone else is, like, trying to tell you, no, you don't have it, it's whatever, like, you'll get over it, don't don't listen. Like, if you genuinely feel like you are suffering and you need help, then ask for it. Don't wait till it's too late, because once it's too late, there's no going back, right? It's then a complete blow up of your feelings being like i don't know what i'm doing and i hate life versus like it's okay like everything will be okay it doesn't feel like that now but it will eventually all right do you have any final thoughts on anxiety or depression or any mental health issues in general don't belittle those who have it because people are suffering with things that you don't even know about and you don't know what they've gone through or what they're going through right now. So just be aware and be kind to everyone that you talk to. All right, thank you so much. Worldwide, children, teens, and adults are affected by the critical problem of mental health. It's essential to dispel the stigma associated with mental health and to identify the warning signs and symptoms of mental health problems. By doing so, we can help communities that are suffering in silence. I'm your host, Emma Rakovic, and thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of What's the Dilemma? Make sure to tune in to future episodes.